0: Well, I'm going to start uh, this morning from reading an excerpt from what is uh, one of my favorite books of all time, Crazy Love by Francis Chan. He says, as a pastor, I'm often called upon when life vanishes like a mist. One of the most powerful examples I've seen of this was Stan Gerlock, a successful businessman who is well known in the community. Stan was giving a eulogy at a memorial service when he decided to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. At the end of his message, Stan told the mourners, you never know when God is going to take your life. At that moment, there's nothing you can do about it. Are you ready? Then Stan sat down, fell over, and died. His wife and sons tried to resuscitate him, but there was nothing they could do, just as Stan had said a few minutes earlier. I'll never forget receiving that phone call and heading over to the Gerlach house. Stan's wife, Susie, was just arriving home. She hugged me and cried. One of her sons, John, stepped out of the car weeping. He asked me, did you hear the story? Did you hear? I'm so proud of him. My dad died doing what he loved doing most. He was telling people about Jesus. I was asked to share a word with everyone gathered. There were children, grandchildren, neighbors, and friends. I opened my Bible to Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I asked everyone to imagine what it must have felt like for Stan. One moment, he was at a memorial service saying to a crowd, This is who Jesus is. The next, he was before God hearing Jesus say, This is who Stan Gerlach is. One second he was confessing Jesus. A second later, Jesus was confessing him. It happens that quickly. And it could happen to any of us. In the words of Stan Gerlock, are you ready? Welcome to Grumlaw Church. That is quite the way to start a message. But how many of you have ever heard the phrase, the writing is on the wall? If I could see your hands, I think that most of you are probably raising them right now. Probably every one of you have heard that phrase. But in a nutshell, it means uh, that something bad usually is about to happen to you, that your fate has been sealed. In the context of life and death, it refers to what is often an uncomfortable truth for a lot of people that we all will eventually die, that, that our time on this earth is quite limited. To, to use another common phrase, your days are numbered. That Nobody's able to put off death. Father time is undefeated. Again, welcome to Gromlaw Church this morning. Why am I telling you all of this? Just about every single one of us have, have heard that phrase before, that the writing is on the wall, but most of us probably had no idea that its origins actually lie in this book of Daniel. In this series, we're marching chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel. It's a book that we find in the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible, right near the end of that Old Testament, Uh, because the book of Daniel, we're exploring this because it provides us with a playbook as to how we not only survive in Babylon, but thrive, how to not simply endure, but influence. If you haven't been tracking with us throughout this series, Babylon doesn't just describe some civilization that existed some 2,500 years ago. Babylon is actually a term used throughout all of human history to describe the spirit of this world. As bizarre as it will sound to some of you, there has been an evil spirit influencing our world, influencing our culture for all of human history right up to present day. That this spirit leads us away from God, leads us away from our creator and towards this world. We would call this spirit again Babylon. Every single one of us, Christian or not, we are feeling right now that culture is shifting underneath our feet, headed into what feels like some uncharted waters. And how are we supposed to navigate all of this, especially if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus? Well, the book of Daniel provides us with that playbook to not simply survive, but thrive in Babylon it's also worth noting that these messages, that they're best consumed in conjunction with one another, not as like these isolated standalone messages. So I'm asking you, if you're new, if you haven't been here for the entirety of this series, it'd be a really good idea uh, to go catch yourself up and listen at Grumlaw.com slash messages. And I say this every single week, you can also find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever you grab those podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you grab them from. But as we continue to march chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel, today we find ourselves in Daniel chapter five. I want to invite you to pull out your Bibles uh, wherever you're watching from right now. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can also download something called the Version app. I would invite you to download that thing. It is 100% free, and then you have a Bible like right at your fingertips on your phone, but we'll also obviously have it here on the screen as well. But has been the case throughout the series, today uh, we're going to be tackling what is another one of those often uncomfortable subjects, specifically, as promised, taking a look again at where we get this phrase, the writing is on the wall. Now, allow me to give you a little bit of context regarding where we're at at this point in the life of Daniel. Uh, the year now is about 539 BC, which means that roughly 70 years have now passed since Daniel and some of his closest friends and a bunch of other people were brought against their will to Babylon. We're actually about 40 years between the events that were documented that we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Daniel, if you're doing the math then, he's an old man, like over 80 years old, old. King Nebuchadnezzar, whom we talked about at length in those first five parts of the series, He's been dead now for about 23 years, which means uh, that Daniel has a new king, a guy who goes by the name of Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar is actually the spoiled, entitled, trust fund grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is throwing an all-out rager of a party. He is partying like it is 539 BC because, well, it was. So we're going to pick up here in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. It says, many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he drank wine with them. Uh, I've highlighted the word wine here because what is translated wine in our English language in the original language with where this was written, uh, it's actually a pretty distinct word. We see wine pop up all over this ancient text, but here we see this word wine and more literally translated, it would mean lots of wine. That The the writer is making a point of emphasis that these people were doing a lot of drinking. This was a rager of a party. Well, while Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Now, as we talked about in part one, when one nation defeated a nation at this point in history, it wasn't just seen as our people defeated your people or our nation defeated your nation. It was also seen as our gods defeated your gods. So Belshazzar, he's rolling out all these relics to basically show to all of his guests, hey, look at how victorious Babylon had been. Look at how incredible we've been in battle. Look at all the gods that we have defeated. It's like MTV Cribs circa 539 BC. It's like, y'all got a Bentley and a Rolls Royce? He's like rolling out all this stuff. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. Now, I've highlighted concubines here because uh, at this point in history, it was very normal that that wives, in fact, even customary, that your wife would be present at a party like this, especially the wife of the king. What was not common were the concubines. In fact, most biblical scholars would agree here that that he brought in his concubines to be used by the people at the party. I'll kind of let you fill in the blanks with what I'm getting at there, Uh, PG-13. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. He, he, here's what I'm getting at right here. that This was not a normal party. There is a lot of stuff happening at this party that I think we all, Christian or not, we would all agree is just wrong. And it's being done in a way that, that is outright defiant to the living God. They are challenging God. It's not sinning in secret. It's not sinning behind closed doors. It's not sinning and then feeling terrible about it. No, no, it's sinning and absolutely loving it, challenging the almighty living God. Now, now spoiler alert throughout all of human history, not just in the Bible, this type of defiance against God. Uh, It usually does not go well for the individual that is doing the offending, and this is certainly not an exception. Uh, On to where we get our famous phrase here, the writing is on the wall. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace. So a severed hand appears out of nowhere and begins to write with a finger on the wall near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote and his face turned pale with fright. He is terrified. His knees knocked together in fear and his legs gave way beneath him. Belshazzar's attention has been grabbed. You talk about a buzzkill for a party. He, he is coming to grips with the fact that maybe, just maybe, he has pushed the envelope just a little bit too far. Now, now, now most translations don't actually capture the emotion of this moment appropriately, so I'm just going to put it plainly. Belshazzar pooped his pants. I, I'm not being crude. I'm not trying to be funny. I, I'm serious. Most biblical scholars, because of the way that this is originally written, in, in the original language, they agree that this is probably what was going on here. He, he literally soiled himself. He is terrified as I think we all probably would be as well if a severed hand started to write on a wall. Now this made me think of, uh, this was years and years ago. Uh, Graham, who is our portability director at our Graham Blank location, uh, right before he, he was getting married, uh, I took him on like a little retreat. I had done this with each guy on our staff before they had gotten married, where we went away for 24, 48 hours and we just fasted and prayed, spent time in scripture, just, just preparing for that upcoming marriage and just praying for God's blessing over the marriage. Uh, and it came near the end of the night. We had spent basically like 12 hours just praying and fasting. Uh, it was kind of near the end of the night, starting to get dark outside. I was like, dude, let's get out of the house for a little bit. And I had rented this Airbnb and be out in the middle of nowhere. It was like out in the country. And we noticed when we pulled into this long winding driveway that across the street was like this abandoned house. You know windows are shattered. The the roof is starting to cave in, like weeds as tall as your head. So it's like clearly nobody's living at this place. And I was like, dude, let's go explore that abandoned home because this is what dudes do when they're alone together. We come up with brilliant ideas like this. And so we go into this house and like I said, it's starting to, the sun is starting to set. So there's really not great lighting. So we're basically navigating around this house with with the lights on our cell phone. And, And what was really kind of spooky about this house, it was like, like They just got up and left. There were drawers still filled with clothing. All the furniture was still in there. Now, people had also gone in there and vandalized and stuff, but it was like, they didn't take anything with them. They didn't liquidate this house whatsoever. And and then I come around one corner into like this little living area, and there's a National Geographic poster on the wall. And in the middle of the poster, as I look, this is not a joke. I'm not making this up, and I don't know if you can see it super well. My name, written in red ink, spelled correctly. Nobody ever spells my name right. And I look at this and I'm like, what? That is the weirdest thing ever. And I call Grammys in the other room. I was like, dude, get over here. And he's like running around the corner. I was like, look at this. And he's like, that's kind of spooky. I was like, yeah, I think it's time to leave. And we're like, yeah, we're, we're gonna get out of here now. And we just left the house. We are pretty scared. Belshazzar is absolutely terrified. And, and I'm guessing we all would have been as well if we would have been at that party. And so he goes out and he sets out to attempt to figure out what the writing on that wall means. So like his grandfather, he calls together all these wise people, enchanters and astrologers and magicians, and he promises them, hey, I will give you great rewards if you can tell me the meaning of this writing on the wall. But as it would turn out, nobody can figure it out, which actually only serves to freak Belshazzar out even further. Now, as a bit of a footnote on this point, if the spirit of God gives revelation, which is what this is, it is only the Spirit of God who can offer interpretation. It is only the spirit of God that can bring clarity. The spirit of Babylon cannot give interpretation for the spirit of God. It's why actually in 2 Corinthians, we're told very, very clearly that the spirit of this world cannot understand and will re- reject God as foolishness. It is why often people who are outside the Christian church will look in and they'll poke fun at us. They're like, oh, that is so cute that you believe that stuff. It should not shock us when Babylonians cannot understand what followers of Jesus, are interpreting and what seems so clear to us. They do not have the spirit of God in them. Now, Belshazzar's mother, uh, she hears about what's going on and she remembers well the days of King Nebuchadnezzar. And she remembers that Nebuchadnezzar used to have all these dreams, these night terrors, and he could never figure out what they meant. So he used to call for this Israelite guy by the name of Daniel. And he always had no trouble whatsoever interpreting these dreams. And she thinks to herself, well, he interpreted dreams all the time. I suppose like four words written on a wall. He's not going to have a hard time with that. And so she goes to Belshazzar and she's like, hey, you need to ask for this Daniel guy. And so, of course, right away he sends for Daniel and Daniel comes strolling in. That's my impression of on, on a walker because you know, he's 80 years old at this point. He, he takes one look at the wall and without even flinching. He goes, yeah, I know exactly what that means because he had the spirit of God in him. And he looks at Belshazzar and he says, this is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. And, and then Daniel goes on to offer an interpretation. You can read this for yourself. He first up says, hey, mene means numbered. And he looks right at the king the most powerful person on the planet, he says, your days are numbered. Your days are coming to an end very soon. By the way, when you're 80 years old, you don't give a rip about nothing. You just start speaking truth. You're like, whatever. It's like, I'm borrowed time at this point. Tekel means weighed. He again looks at the king He says, you have been weighed on the balance and you come up short. Belshazzar, you do not measure up. And then he says, parson means divided. Your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, it's going to be divided quite specifically between the Medes and the Persians. Now now, now listen to this. This is incredible. We know not just from scripture, but, but from other history books, as well as archaeological findings, that the day after these words were recorded, Babylon was invaded by the Medo-Persian Empire and fell. What was once the most powerful nation on the planet fell never to rise again. And on that particular invasion, Belshazzar was killed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson, numbered, weighed, divided. Now, as we've been talking about, the book of Daniel is the playbook for all of human history for how we not only survive in Babylon, but thrive how we don't only endure, but influence. So what do these words, what, what does this chapter, Many, many tekel and parson, what does this have to do with any of us? Church, I just kinda wanna come clean here on the front end. I'm gonna admit to all of you, this is not really a subject that's all that fun to talk about. This is one of those where I'm like, can we just kinda breeze past Daniel chapter five? There are certain topics things like God's grace, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit being our helper, that kind of get like this universal approval rating. But, but, but then there are other topics that, that are brought up in this book that we call the Bible, that, that we just kind of prefer to push to the side. We're like, yeah, we, we, we don't really need to talk about that. But pastors like me will say things like, well, that's more of a private conversation, not, not something to ta- be talked about publicly on a Sunday morning. There are the topics that are met with a lot of blank stares, a lot of kind of like uncomfortable shifting in seats. And again, if i being total, totally vulnerable for a person like me, it makes me a little fearful as to whether all of you will tune back in next week. See, there are some topics that get you applauded as the hero. And, and there are other topics that get you pounded like a nail. This one is the latter. But, but I wanna explain this. As your pastor, I have a deep-seated conviction and more importantly, in obedience to Holy Spirit, to, to not just present with you with what you want to hear, with what I want to hear, but, but what is true. In, in fact, I'll, I'll go so far as to say to not speak, to not teach on topics such as these is precisely the most unloving thing that I could do for this faith community. And, and if you really hate what, what I'm about to share, what I'm about to teach on, remember, you can get free Starbucks if you show back up next week. Okay, let's just kind of get this out here. The writing is on the wall for all of us. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson will ultimately be God's verdict on every single person who is watching right now. Mene, again, means, means numbered. Now, what's really, really interesting is that we know for certain, we know for certain that the Babylonians knew of the invading Medo-Persian army as they're throwing this party. And they also knew that their army did not stand a chance. They knew that they were gonna lose that battle. They knew they were gonna be defeated. So it stands to ask the question, what kind of an idiot throws a party when death is on your doorstep? And I'll tell you who, basically all people for all of human history, including right now in present day America. Most people spend their entire lives distracting themselves from the reality of their coming and certain death. Satan has been doing this since day one when he whispered to Eve, surely you won't die. Even though we know propositionally that our days are indeed numbered, the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of this world has convinced us to live oblivious to the reality of our coming death and the permanency Of eternity. One of my favorite quotes of of all time is I just love how it cuts through the red tape and it just cuts right to the chase. It's it's so simple. It's so clear. It comes from a rapper by the name of Lecrae. He says, if I'm wrong about God, then I wasted my life. If you're wrong about God, then you wasted your eternity. Every single one of our days have been numbered. Now, now you probably won't be told by a prophet exactly when you're going to die like Belshazzar, but but we all know this. We all know that eventually we're gonna die. And, and when we die, what then? Now, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I, I know exactly where I'm going. And, and honestly, the world, Babylon, will point their finger and, and they'll laugh at followers of Jesus. Oh, that's so cute that you subscribed to that little fairy tale. I mean, what a nice little thing that you've you know, kind of decided to believe, but there's no way that can be true. That's fine, laugh all you want, but come on, who is taking the bigger risk? Because every single one of us agree that this time on earth is finite. What what people disagree about, what there's contention on is is this whole idea of eternity. And, And if eternity is for real, if there's something after this life, our time on this earth, something that lasts well forever, I am not crazy enough to leave that to chance. All of our days are numbered. Tekel, again, means weighed. Now, if we rewind a little bit in Daniel chapter five, before Daniel uh, actually goes on to interpret this writing on the wall f- for the king, he, he actually first takes a jog down memory lane with Belshazzar. He, he, he reminds him of how God humbled his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, hey, don't you remember that whole episode where like, Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had so much pride that God thought it necessary to literally, like basically cause him to live like a wild animal for seven years, stripped everything that was comfortable away from you. You remember that? Because again, your grandfather's pride. And, And then he looks right at him and he says, and remember when you're 80 years old, you don't give a rip about nothing. He says, hey, you are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny, where you're gonna spend eternity. See, God through Daniel is charging Belshazzar with two things. One, he's going, you have not put... God first. You have not worshiped God as God. You haven't given him glory. You haven't credited him with your successes, your accomplishments, your power. You have not lived your life, Belshazzar, in response to him. He has not held first place in your heart. Instead, you worshiped idols because you thought you could control them, and you've lived to please yourself, not God. And two, he says, you have taken what God set apart for his purposes and used them for yourself. Church, that's pretty much the textbook definition of sin. Taking what God has set apart for his purposes and using it for our own. Now, now let me show you just a couple of common ways that uh, I see people doing this. One is with our, our talents. Your talents, your gifts, to be very clear, were given to you from God to glorify God and to serve him, to be used as instruments to lead other people closer to him. To, to not use them for his purposes is like stealing the consecrated things and using them for yourself. In, in fact, Jesus during his time on earth, he, he speaks very, very directly to this. He, he, in fact, at one point tells this whole story uh, where he talks about these three servants that work for this wealthy landowner, and the wealthy landowner is to go, decides to go away on business for you know, a period of time. And while he's gone, he, he looks at these three servants and he gives each of them sums of money. He gives one $5,000, another $3,000, another $1,000. He's like, hey, while I'm gone, I, I want you to do something wise with this money. And, and so he goes away, comes back, and he calls the three of them together, and he's like, all right, how do we do? First two guys are like, we doubled it. He's like, that is awesome way to go. He looks at the third guy and he goes, what about you? And he's like, well,. You know, you kind of have the reputation for being a little bit harsh, and I don't want to lose the money. So uh, what I did is I went out and I buried it in a hole uh, and waited for you to come back. So it is a little bit dirty, but don't worry, I didn't lose the nickel. At least he's breaking even, right? Wrong. Jesus calls this money barrier a wicked servant. Uh, apparently being wicked goes beyond breaking blatant commandments given by God and extends to failing to leverage your talents for God's purposes. D- don't miss this. One is the sin of commission. The other is the sin of omission. L- let that sink in. What-, what Jesus is saying is you can be the model churchgoer, never do anything wrong, never break any laws, but God may see you as wicked simply because you did not offer your talents back to him like a blank check saying, God, what do you want me to do with these? To not do that is stealing from God. Another way that we go about doing this is with our resources. Uh, Every single one of you watching, I'm guessing, live in America, which means that every single one of us have more stuff, money, and possessions than we will ever need. I'm gonna speak right now in a very, very straightforward way. Uh, And by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please ignore me here for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your time to tune in. There are many people watching right now who claim Christ, but you continue to stand in defiance in this particular area. You continue to mock God in this particular area. You continue to take what God has set apart as his and you steal it for yourself. Those are God's words, not mine. We spent six weeks teaching about this back in uh, October and November. God makes this very, very clear. This is not a gray area. This is as black and white as black and white gets. He says 10% of your pay as a follower of Jesus is his. Don't touch it. He commands you to give it to him. But just like Belshazzar, And some of you are gonna say, that's not a fair comparison. I promise you it's more than fair. It is no different in the eyes of God. You continue to rob God, taking what he has set apart for his purposes and you instead use it for your own. Come on, I I, I take no pleasure in passing this along, but I want you to think about this question. Are you using your resources to leverage the kingdom of God or to leverage your kingdom? Now, Now to be clear, this extends beyond money. There's nothing off limits for God. As followers of Jesus, it is all up for grabs to be used in his kingdom. In fact, one of the prayers that I began to pray all over again is, Uh, And I'm sorry if my wife's watching right now, you're finding out about this, like literally right this, I haven't even told you this yet. But uh, my wife and I, we have a guest room, which if there's anything that speaks to the abundance of Americans is that most of us have guest rooms in our house for like people that might stay the house, stay the night at our house. uh, And that like really accounts to usually about 10 days a year. Like it's not very often at all. But uh, my wife and I uh, throughout the years have had girls, uh, had singles that have lived in our basement just because they needed a place to love. They needed a family to love on them. Uh, and we've opened up our home for, you know, literally years at a time at certain points. And uh, now this guest room in our home, it's sat empty now for, for a pretty long time. And as I was preparing this message and, you know, maybe feeling pretty good about myself in the financial world, God's like, hey, what, what about that room? What, what about that room that just continues to sit empty? You think maybe we should pray about that? You think maybe you should ask me if, if I want to put somebody else in there? I'm like, okay, so... Back to to this again. I'm back to praying like, okay, God, if you want to use this room for somebody that's supposed to come live with us, I'm open to that. Church, again, I I know teaching on this isn't gonna win me a lot of fanfare, but God is absolutely weighing us. He's paying attention to whether or not we're putting him first. He, He knows if we're using what he has generously given us for our own glory or for his and church, I really, really want us to think about this. The Babylonians knew they were about to be invaded. They knew death was at their door, and what did they do? Just kept on partying, living oblivious to their coming death and the permanency of their eternity. Have you loved and served God above all things? Have you used the time, the resources, the, the, the talents that God has given you for His glory and His purposes or for your own? I, I, I promise I'm saying this genuinely. It causes me untold grief, as it does your heavenly Father, that many of you are going to hear this message today, and you will pause for a moment to reflect. You'll think about the implications. You'll sit there like, man, that kind of just hit me like a ton of bricks. You might wake up Monday morning still thinking about it. Shoot, it might last a week. It will grab your attention. But rather than making wholesale changes to your life, you'll eventually just wait for the music to kick back on and keep on partying. Which brings us to that final word. Parson, divided. Your kingdom, your life will be taken from you. Paul tells us in his early letter to the Christian church in Rome, he reminds us of a truth that I actually think we all know, that we all fall short, that none of us measure up. And and the wages of living this way, it leads to death, that the writing is on the wall for all of us. Now, about 95% of this message is kind of like the swift kick to the groin, but, but here's where it makes a turn, and for some of us, will almost sound too good to be true. Just like the finger of God appeared to the Babylonians some 2,500 years ago, about 500 years after this event that we're exploring this morning, God in flesh stepped foot on this earth. Through the person of Jesus, the finger of God has appeared to this generation, verified through prophecy verified through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God in spirit, verified through miracles, and most of all, verified, validated by the resurrection of Jesus. To be clear, I don't believe in Jesus and subscribe wholesale to everything we talked about this morning because the Bible told me so, because Daniel told me so. I embrace all of this because Jesus showed me so the son of God came down to this earth and after living the perfect life that we were all supposed to live, then died the death that is owed to each of us. But rather than staying dead, which has been the tradition and the track record for literally every human being ever, he rose from the grave. He predicted his own death and predicted his own resurrection then actually pulled that off. In the person of Jesus, we're given a message just as serious As the one Belshazzar received, Mene Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Our days are numbered. Every single one of us, we will die. We have been measured and we come up short. We have been found deficient. Not one of us measure up. Now, Now, this message that I'm giving right now has the opportunity to get misconstrued. And you walk away and you feel nothing but guilt and shame that, that God is just this, ugh, this, this this vicious God of judgment. But, but, but don't you see how through Jesus he is reaching out to you in mercy? In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, no, he's being patient for your sake. He, he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. It, it is God's desire that every single one of you who are watching right now would turn would turn from that old way of living. It it, it is God's desire that every single one of you at the end of your lives would find yourself in heaven for eternity, that none of you would perish, that every single person watching would experience eternal life. Listen, if he was all judgment, all you're in trouble, he, he wouldn't have sent his son. At the core of Jesus's message is that none of us will ever measure up. We all fall short, but God... Rather than leaving us in this predicament, he offered up his one and his only son as the substitute to, to take divine judgment in your place, in my place. He, he lived the life that you were supposed to live then died the death that you were condemned to die, paying the price for your sin. And then so when you receive him onto your side of the scales, God puts the righteousness of Christ And on that other side, he takes away any bit of condemnation that came from your sins. So there's nothing left on that side of the scale. That that means that if you are in Christ on the scales of God's justice, you are no longer deficient. You, You no longer fall short. Nothing in all of eternity could ever tip the scales of justice against you because on your side is the once and for all payment of Jesus God quite literally tipped the scales in your direction. Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parson. Our kingdom will be divided. At the end of our lives, if we leverage all that we have received from God for ourselves, we'll lose it. All of it, up to and including our lives, even our souls. But God gives us the opportunity to live our lives in such a way, to leverage our time, talents, and treasure in such a way that it all points back to him. Where we go to God and say, what do you want me to do with all of this? What do you want to do with me? That the writing is on the wall. But as followers of Jesus, our hope does not lie in Babylon. Babylon. Our hope does not lie in this world. It lies in an eternal kingdom. It lies, most importantly, in a resurrected Savior. And that hope that we find in Jesus, it allows us to not simply survive in Babylon, but thrive, to not simply endure, but influence.